Morning, everybody. Um, if you are out there wondering, man, Brian looks different this week. There's something about it. I can't quite put my finger on it. <laughs> you know, Christmas miracle had a, uh, you know. No, uh, my name is Warren Davey. Uh, I work with the college ministry here at Harvest. So if you are a college student or you know any college students, I'm the guy that you're supposed to point them to. <laughs> um, I'm not the one who's usually preaching. Uh, that's not what I normally do. So uh, if I stumble over stuff or uh, I don't make any sense at all up here, this isn't my day job. So that's why. Sometimes Brian just asks me like, hey, I'm going to be gone. Would you mind filling in? And I'm like, yeah, but like this isn't what I normally do. So I'm not great at it. So you have to cut me a little bit of slack and be a little gracious with me. Um, but so as we've already lit the candles, these past few weeks, our church has been practicing what is truly and genuinely like one of my favorite Christian traditions of all time, uh, the meditations leading up to Christmas that we call Advent, the Advent season, right? Um, it's an ancient practice. You know, there's evidence of, of Christians doing Advent-type celebrations from about the mid to late 300s AD, so a long, long time ago, like before our continent was even discovered, Christians were doing this. Um, you know, it, it crosses across all cultures. Uh, my family is Hispanic, and we do an Advent celebration, and we call every Sunday night. Even though I'm thousands of miles away from my family right now, we still make it an, an effort to, to call and to share that time together. Um, and so just as we practice the Advent season, for me, it's a huge time of unity in the Christian church, not just unity here as believers as we come together to celebrate, but unity across all different cultures, uh, across the globe of Christians, and across decades and centuries back with Christians in the past as well. There's just a unity that comes with that. And, and I just love that. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, so when Brian asked me to talk about uh, the Advent candle of, jo of hope, I was like, the Advent candle of love. That's this week. <laughs> We're not hope this week. Uh, either way, I, the fact that I get to talk with you guys and share a little bit about Advent is just super exciting to me. So I'm just really glad to be here. Um, so quick recap. Uh, I know we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but does anybody remember any of the three uh, Advent candles that we've already lit in the past? If you can't remember, they're right behind me. <laughs> they're hung up right here, so just spoiler alert, <laughs> but anybody give me any of them? Peace, joy, hope, right? Um, so this week we're, we, we're covering love, um, and so that'll bring us into our full, you know, on, on these wood panels back here, uh, the, the four attribute candles. Um, because as you may or may not know, the, the middle candle is the Christ candle. And that one's a little bit different. It's even a little bit of a different color. It's placed in the middle. It's not around. Uh, but it's certainly you can tell that you know, there's a difference between love, joy, hope, peace, and Christ. It's kind of the odd one out. And we'll talk a little bit about, more about that in the Christmas Eve service. So if you're wondering why that's different, maybe come next week, right? <laughs> um, but why these particular attributes? Um, are they the most important things in the Christian uh, religion? Well, what about things like faith, right? Why, why isn't there an Advent candle of faith on there? Or why isn't there the Advent candle of patience on there? You know, those are good things, things we teach our kids, things that are important. Um, and as I kind of meditated on this and, and thought about this, the more I thought about, you know, one of the big things we do at Christmas is presents and celebrations, right, and, and gift giving. And I think the reason that we have these particular candles here um, is because they're gifts that we receive from God. Um, God doesn't, you know, God is not Santa Claus. He doesn't come down the chimney and, and give us presents on our fireplace, <laughs> right? 
Um, but the gifts he has given us are these Advent candles that we celebrate, these attributes of love. We receive love from God. We receive hope from God, peace from God with the coming of Christ. Um, God didn't put his faith in us. We put our faith in God. Our response is to put our faith in God. And so I would argue that's why we don't have the Advent candle of faith, um, because faith isn't uh, God putting his faith in us, but rather us putting our faith in God. Um, so as we think about love this week, and as we kind of talk about that, just keep that in mind that it's God's free gift to us, and it's about us receiving from God and being blessed by God. So um, just as we talk about love, I just want that rattling in the back of your mind is it's not about um, us giving to God, but rather God giving to us freely. So with all that background, um, today's text from scripture, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, I will give you a second to open your Bibles, flip through, kind of struggle to find where it is. Um, but while you do that, let me give you a little bit of background and context. So the guy who wrote this book uh, was a guy named Matthew, um, and he lived at the same time as Jesus. Uh, he was a Jewish man who was living in ancient Israel while they were under the occupation of the, the Roman nation, right? Um, and this man, Matthew, decided to go work for the enemy, uh, the Roman government. Uh, he was a tax collector, so his job was literally to take money from his fellow countrymen and give it to the occupying force. Uh, so not exactly a well-liked or well-respected guy. Uh, closest analogy would be, uh, think about if, uh, you know, University of Oregon went defunct, you know, bankrupt out of business, and then uh, let's say University of Washington set up a satellite campus here, and someone in this room had the job of making sure that everybody here got a UW shirt. It'd be pretty similar to what Matthew is going through right now. You know, not a really well-liked guy. Um, but part of the reason why he, he did this, um, I, I would think, uh, is because over time he grew a bit jaded. You see, in the Jewish uh, scriptures, this half of the book right here, God had made promises to, to send someone who would make things right, a, a chosen one who would come to save the people of God. Uh, it's what's called the Messiah, the chosen one, right? Uh, and God made those promises from the very beginning. With the first man and woman, you can see God's first promise of the ch chosen one, Messiah, Savior. It, God, that was thousands of years of waiting. Thousands of years of waiting. Things went wrong. Life happened. Romans started occupying, right? You can see why Matthew would grow jaded and cold and, and lose hope in those promises um, and decide, you know what? This Messiah is never coming. I might as well put my skills, I might as well put my work and effort into working for the enemy. And so he had that goal uh, to just do what it takes to survive. But then all that changed when he actually met Jesus, right? Suddenly, the promise that had seemed so far off was fulfilled in front of his eyes. And these gifts of hope, joy, peace, and love sprung up inside him. Matthew went from jaded and dejected to passionately wanting to share hope with all those friends of his who were also jaded and dejected and lost. Um, the very first thing that Matthew does after he begins following Jesus is he throws this huge party in his house and he invites all of his friends and he says, hey, come check out this guy, Jesus. Learn what I have learned. Like, this is fantastic news. Um, and that, that heart motivation from the very get-go continues throughout Matthew's life. In fact, that's why he wrote this book. Um, in, in the Bible, 
there, there's gospel accounts, and those are basically biographies that are written about Jesus' life. Uh, eyewitness, firsthand accounts of like, hey, this is who Jesus was, what he did, things like that. Uh, of those gospels, written by four different guys, this one's written by Matthew. Uh, Matthew is the one that is the most Jewish, right? He's a Jewish guy writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to his fellow countrymen, right? Um, it has, I call it the most Jewish because it has the most connections, the most ties back. Um, we're talking cultural tiebacks, historical tiebacks, uh, holy text tiebacks. Um, Matthew talks a lot as if he's speaking to a fellow man from his, from his Jewish background. Um, that's why, as you open to Matthew chapter 1, the, the first half of that chapter is a, a really long genealogical record, a family tree, if you will, uh, of Jesus' background. Um, now, before you get too worried as I'm talking about this, we're not going to read it all. Um, I know that this, for our modern ears, is usually the part of the Bible that most people kind of make fun of a little bit. You know, when you think about long, boring passages of Scripture, this is the kind of stuff that most people talk about. You know, this is where, like, if someone like me starts talking about it, half the room falls asleep, right? So just breathe a sigh of relief right now, everybody. Because we're not reading all the so-and-so begat and so-and-so was the father of and the son of and all that. We're not reading that today, but I just do want to point out that if you do find this boring, if that's not something that particularly interests you, probably because you're not the intended audience. <laughs> you're not an ancient first century Jewish man or Jewish woman uh, living in, in Israel. So uh, that, that's not the intended audience, which is why maybe some of it goes over your head. But we will touch on it a little bit later. So I just want to give some background on that. But in the interest of time, and frankly, in the interest of keeping your interest, uh, let's skip all that genealogy stuff and go straight to verse 18. Um, so I'm going to read starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had uh, betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved in his heart to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, for those of you who have uh, grown up in church, or maybe you grew up watching the Peanuts cartoons with uh, Charlie Brown and Linus, you might be thinking, gee, there's parts of the story that are missing here. Uh, where's the, the heavenly host of angels? All I see is one angel here. Where, where are the shepherds that are out in the field? Where's the big bad guy, King Herod? Uh, we do get details about that in the other gospel accounts, uh, but what we're looking at here uh, is more Joseph's perspective of thing. Matthew's talking from more Joseph's eye view, and that's why he talks about the dream that Joseph had, which really doesn't get mentioned much uh, in the other gospels. Um, but really, with focusing on Joseph's vision and Joseph's perspective of how things are happening, Matthew cuts straight to the heart of why things are happening. There's a lot of background stuff that does happen, which is really awesome. I love the angels and the shepherds and stuff, but Matthew cuts right to the heart of 
why is that happening? Uh, and that actually brings me to what here at, here at Harvest we call the, the one thing or the big thing. Um, if you'd remember nothing else, if you fall asleep for the rest of the sermon, this is the one thing I want you to lock in on. We know God's love because he came to be with us. We now show love when we are with him. So what do I mean by that? Uh, well, right off the bat, if we're going to break that down, I, I think we have to start with uh, asking ourselves what love even is. Um, or more accurately, what is biblical love? Uh, because let's be honest, love can cover a, a wide range. It's a, it's a pretty big word. For only four letters, it, it covers a lot of human emotions. So what is uh, biblical love? Uh, well, I, I think it's a little bit difficult to set one hard, fast rule. It's, I, I think we can't write a, a definition that we can find in a dictionary that would 100% of the time always cover what love is. Uh, but in some way, it has to have some component of, of emotion and some component of action. Uh, love has some sort of emotion of, of favor or, or desire or, hey, I like that. Um, and the actions that fall in line with that all directed towards the well-being of another person. So there's emotion, there's action, and there's other person doing well, right? Um, I think that's the beauty of the Christmas story, is that we are the other person in this. We're the ones receiving the gift from God. God's love is directed toward us. Like we talked about earlier, it's that free gift. Now, love can be based on a lot of different things, right? I love college football because I think it's the most exciting sport in the world. I don't love baseball because I can't think of a more dull pastime, right? <laughs> I love that it's called America's pastime because, yeah, it's like watching paint dry. Like, it passes time, right? <laughs> if you're a baseball fan out there, I can't imagine why. <laughs> I'm not even going to say sorry. I just, I just can't imagine why you're even a baseball fan. Um, I love my cats because they bring me joy. They snuggle with me. They play fetch with me. I, somehow my cats think they're dogs and actually bring stuff back when I throw them. It's kind of impressive. Uh, I don't love the ants in my house because they annoy me and they're not supposed to be in my house, right? Uh, love can be based on a lot of different things, entertainment, snuggliness, things like that. Um, so is that maybe why God loves us? Do we impress him in some way? Do we uh, earn his favor, you know, does he maybe need to be loved somewhere deep down inside? Uh, the biblical answer is no, like a clear resounding no. Uh, if God really is the, the greatest possible being, uh, he should be complete without needing our input. Um, God isn't like Santa Claus from the movie Elf. Anybody seen that movie with Will Ferrell? Know what I'm talking about, right? How does Santa Claus's uh, sleigh work? What's the power source? Believing, right? The more people believe in him, the more, the more Christmas cheer they have, the more they believe in Santa, the more energy his sleigh has. Um, God's not like that. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful, without us needing to believe in him. God's not like ancient paganism where people would offer sacrifices and food to the God, and maybe that's how the gods sustain themselves. No, God is self-sustaining. He says, I am who I am. I am because I am. He doesn't need our prayers to somehow give him food and substance. He simply exists. So why does God love us? What's the reason and motivation because of his love? Um, quite simply, because he chooses to, because he wants to. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8 says this, uh, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you 
to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that he chose you, for in fact, you were of the fewest of the people. And then key, and this is really important, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that he chose you. That's incredible, right? To answer the question, why does God choose us? Why does God love us? God loves us because he chooses to love us. He simply does. And he'll continue to love us because he's promised to continue to love us. No one made him choose. This isn't a decision out of duty or obligation or simply, oh, I guess I have to love these guys. He, we don't have to bend him or force him to change his mind. He simply says, I will love you and choose to love you. And he has. It's his nature. It's why the Bible says God is love. The best human example I can think of to tie this together is that of a parent and a child. Uh, kids oftentimes ask the, the dreaded question, uh, it's every parent's nightmare, why, right? Because you can always tack that on to the end of something. You know, uh, why, I, I want to have more sweets tonight. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't. Well, why? Because uh, it's bad for your teeth, they'll rot out. Well, why? Because it has a lot of sugar and not a lot of great uh, whatever for your teeth. But why? Because, but why? Because, but why? 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 You can always tack on another why at the end of it and go one layer deeper, deeper until suddenly you're talking about like dentistry and the, the, the roots of your teeth and stuff you don't even know about. And you're just saying, well, that's just how the world works, right? Um, the, the one thing that you really can't get to the bottom of, uh, or one of the things at least, is if your kid starts asking you, why do you love me? I mean, what do you say to that? It's, I'm your parent. I just love you. I just do. Uh, it's not because the kid impressed you in some way. It's not because uh, they baked you a, a half-baked pancake and tried to bring you breakfast in bed, and all of a sudden, that is the reason you love them. Like, no, you love them before that, I would hope. Uh, no matter how cute they looked in the little sailor outfit that you dressed them up in and had a whole photo shoot with, you don't love them because they look cute. If a good parent loves simply because they are a parent. That's just what it is. You can't ask the why and get any deeper than, man, I'm just your parent. I love you. That's just how it works. Um, and that's exactly how the Bible says it works with the family of God. God loves us because he chooses to love us, and it's because that is who he is. And the beautiful part is the Bible says at one point we were not part of God's family. At one point we were apart from him. We lived in sin. We are in fact his enemies is the word the Bible uses. So God doesn't have to love us. He's under no obligation to, to love and redeem his enemies. But because he loves us so much, he's adopted us. We've been part of the family. Love is that underlying motivation. So that's the gift that's offered. That's the gift that's on the table, becoming part of that adopted family. So how do we receive that gift? How do we unwrap it? How do we experience it? Love is a pretty abstract gift, right? Um, with other human beings, that'd be kind of a crappy Christmas present. Let's be honest, right? <laughs> like my, my wife is here in the crowd today. If I told her, hey, you know what? I thought about long and hard what I should get you for Christmas, and I just got you love. I just love you a lot this holiday season. Like, yes, it's true, I love her, but I, I personally, I think that'd be a, not a great Christmas present to get for my wife, right? Um, because it's not something physical, it's not something tangible, it's not something we can, we can hold. From one human to another, it's a very difficult gift to, to unwrap, right? Um, 
so therefore, if we want to experience the gift of love that God has given us, I think we need to change our mindset a little bit um, and be a bit more intentional in how we think about it, how we choose to experience it. Um, and the first step to opening a Christmas present is to receive it, right? So how do we do that? Well, Romans 6.23 uh, in the Bible tells us that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That word through right there, you know, you can spend a whole sermon series talking about what that verse means. But for now, I'm just going to choose that one word through, circle that real quick. The free gift comes through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to have that free gift of love. That's God's chosen and appointed way of bestowing to us that love. Um, God, Jesus is the one who brings us the gift. He's the Santa Claus in this situation. He's the one who brings the gift to us, right? Um, the Bible tells us in John 1, 12, to all who receive him, being Jesus, being Christ, uh, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. When we believe in Christ for salvation, when we put our hope and faith in him, we become part of that God family, and we get to experience that love. And that's the first step to receiving it and, and having it. And I think that's why it's so important that God came to dwell with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Like we see in Matthew uh, his name, Emmanuel, means God is with us. Um, and, and just pausing really quick right there. Uh, if you're on the fence about Christianity, if you're kind of weighing your pros and cons, I think this is one of the really great big advantages that Christianity has to offer that really no other religion offers. Um, because we as humans find it hard to relate to things that are not human, right? <laughs> or things that we can't see, that we can't touch, that we can't feel, that we can't experience. Um, if I told you right now, hey, you need to give all your love and devotion to this uh, invisible being up in the sky that you can't see, you can't visualize, even trying to visualize him would fail, that'd be pretty hard to do. Um, but one really cool thing about Christianity is that Jesus is God come down in the flesh. He is God himself. Um, we can visualize Jesus. I mean, we all have maybe different vis visualizations of what he looks like, you know, um, what exactly hair color did he have? Was it brown, black? I, I don't know. But th the point is, like, he was a person who lived with us. And so I'm just putting that out there as one thing that I consider an advantage of Christianity. Uh, but um, going back to what we see uh, in Matthew 1, uh, this God with us uh, offers us a lot of opportunity to experience the love of God um, and a lot of opportunity to to see practical ways that we can feel and, and know that love in our own personal life. Um, so really, I'm going to be focusing mostly on that name of God in there, Emmanuel, God with us. Um, so I'll point out three ways uh, that I think that uh, God has allowed us to experience his love in our lives uh, through Emmanuel, through Jesus. Now, you'll notice in your bulletin, normally Brian has like a whole... Uh, outline with like blanks and stuff like that. And like, you can fill in the word right there where you're going to do that. Uh, I don't have that. Uh, if you look in your bulletin, all you'll see is like a blank sheet where you can take your own personal notes. <laughs> so if you're the kind of person like me who likes to take notes um, and you're leaving room for stuff, I'm going to give you three reasons. Uh, so just keep that in mind. So the first way that we can know and experience God's love is through his history of faithfulness, through his history of faithfulness. Uh, this is the part where I said earlier I was going to briefly touch on the genealogy list. Uh, and again, I'm not going to break down every single begat and the father of and the son of and all that. Uh, 
But just look at the list for a second. Look, look how long that list is. Just, just take a minute to actually glance at it and see just how extensive that is. I mean, this goes all the way back from Abraham, who I don't even know how long ago he lived, thousands of years, let's say, because um, I have no idea how far back that actually goes on the timeline. But for thousands of years, through every generation, God had an intentional plan for bringing the Messiah that he promised. God first made this, prob- uh, this promise with Eve, and then with Abraham, and then much later with David, uh, to bring the Savior from their offspring. At times, it seemed like this promise was impossible and far off and never coming, which is why people like Matthew became jaded and dejected and lost sight of the hope that they had. But even in that, even when the people lost hope, God was faithful, and he had a plan. Step by step, he walked alongside us and has shown that his love is not temporary. His love is not situational. His love doesn't stay here for a moment and then disperse or dissipate or disappear. It's an enduring, steadfast, consistent, continual love that lasts throughout the generations. So even though you might not read every single name on here, just looking at how extensive the love of God is should bring us hope that he will continue to love us today. The second thing we can see from this genealogy uh, is that love is the primary way God chose to incarnate and reveal himself. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. You can, you can tell a lot about a person by their dream car, right? Uh, if you're a big gearhead, uh, maybe your dream car is a classic American muscle car that you can really work on and, and put in your garage and spend time fixing it up yourself. Uh, or maybe uh, you want a nice convertible that you can drive down the California coast. Uh, maybe you want a, an all-terrain vehicle that can go up to the mountains and you can go hiking and backpacking. Maybe you just want a nice minivan that you can haul all your kids at the same time to one location, right? Whatever your dream car, if we start talking about that, I think it tells me a little bit about who you are, about what you enjoy, about how you like spending your time. If you think about it, this genealogy is kind of like Jesus' mode of transportation. I mean, he could have arrived on earth in any way he wanted. He could have, poof, appears in a puff of smoke, and he's on earth walking around living with us, right? He could have pulled up in, in the fiery chariot that we see in the story of Elijah, right? Like, he could have chosen any way to get from point A, heaven, to point B, earth, right? But he chose, he prioritized coming through the process of love that we call family, Right? Uh, this is an institution that God gave us to, to learn to grow together, to be together, to, to love one another, to bear each other's burdens. That very system that he gave us for learning that first step of love is the way that he decided to come through um, and arrive into earth. Uh, I won't say that every single family in this list uh, was a shining perfect example of what family should be and that there is no brokenness at all in these families. Because frankly, like, we can't say that. Some of these names only appear on this list and never appear anywhere else in the Bible. Some of them, like David, appear throughout the Bible. You see David even in books where David's not alive. Uh, but some of them, we, don't, we have no idea if they were loving, if they were kind, if they were good, good brothers, good sisters. We don't know that. But even in the brokenness, God chose to prioritize family and love. And that's how he chose to come and arrive here on earth. Uh, going with that point, I just want to make one last quick point on the genealogy of Jesus. Um, even in the brokenness, even at the lowest of low circumstances, uh, God continues his faithfulness and continues to prioritize love. Um, it's interesting to note that in this genealogy list, Matthew lists some pretty, oh, what we as humans might consider unlikely names. 
Um, in the culture of the ancient world, uh, men had very little regard for, for women at that time. Um, There's some recorded prayers, um, like prayer books and things like that. Uh, and it was encouraged for men to pray every day, thanking God that they were not outsiders, that they were not slaves, and that they were not women. So every day, men were encouraged to be thankful for God's blessing and not being those three things. Uh, but if you look at Matthew's list here, he turns that on its head. This list includes five women, uh, several people who are famous for their immorality. You know, we think of the Bible as like this holy book and like everybody in the Bible is who we should be like. Like, no, not everybody in the Bible is someone to be imitated. Sometimes it's just a history book that contains bad examples of what not to do. And some of these people make it on Jesus's family tree. It includes these Jewish outsiders, these non, I'm sorry, non-Jewish outsiders, the Gentiles, the people who you're supposed to be thankful that you're not, and more than one bad, unfaithful king. This list of Jesus' background and family tree doesn't hide the sins of the past like we would expect, uh, but rather it emphasizes that God is working through the oppressed, through the unlikely, through the broken, through the lowly. I mean, even look at Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, right? Joseph was a commoner, a, a carpenter, a man who worked with his hands in the backwater town of Nazareth. Nazareth. Jesus wasn't for the few, for the elite, for the holy, for the righteous, for the high and the mighty, but for people everywhere, all people. This is directly in keeping with what God's plan had always been from the beginning. Uh, in Psalm 89, 19, we're told that the Messiah, the chosen one, would be exalted, chosen from among the people. He'll be one of us, one of them. So if God has proven that his love can endure throughout all time, throughout all sorts of brokenness, throughout any kind of circumstance, we can be confident that he'll continue loving us today. So that was the first point. <laughs> uh, my second point um, is that we know God's love for us. We can experience God's love for us when we meditate on how he suffered with us. I love that name, Emmanuel, uh, God with us, um, because it doesn't mean that he's only here when things are pleasant and when things are easy and when things are nice. Um, some people who have misunderstood the Bible uh, have taught the error that Jesus was not fully God. And maybe he was a prophet or a wise man who simply taught what God was whispering in his ear. He was just a, a repeater of what God was saying. Or maybe he was an angel or some sort of created really high, really great, maybe the first being that God created, but not God himself, um, just a step below God. Or more creatively, uh, I've heard some people claim that Jesus referred to the physical man uh, and that the spirit of Christ kind of possessed him, but in a good way maybe, uh, to where Jesus was the person and he experienced all the pain, suffering, dying on the cross and everything, but the spirit, Christ on the inside, uh, didn't actually feel or experience it since he was just a, a visitor in the host body of Jesus. Um, those are interpretations, but I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's how the Bible actually looks at what happened. Because from the moment of his birth, the whole purpose, the entire point is that God is with us. It's not wise man is with us. It's not angels with us. It's not possessed host man is with us. It's God himself is fully with us. I think part of the reason why people teach these errors and believe these errors is not because they're intentionally trying to find ways that they can be wrong. I mean, no one intentionally wants to be wrong. But I think part of it is because it's so difficult, you might even say scandalous, to try to wrap our mind around the unfathomable 
humility that it took for God to step down from heaven and to live in a human body, to claim that God himself took a human form. I mean, think about what you're saying. You're saying that God himself got tired like we got tired and he went to sleep. We're saying that God himself was hungry like we get hungry. We're saying that he felt sadness, anger, anxiety, and loneliness just like we do. That's crazy. Like if we're talking about the all-powerful, self-sustaining, omnipotent God that we talked about earlier, experiencing these things like we do, like that is hard to wrap your mind around. And I can very easily sympathize with people who get it wrong and trying to say, well, maybe Jesus wasn't fully God. I sympathize with that because it is kind of a crazy, audacious claim to make, but it's exactly what Matthew is saying here, that God chose to be with us. It shows how low God bent down to be with us. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 tells us that Jesus, even though he is in the form of God, God himself did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The moment he left heaven, the moment he entered a world of brokenness into a body that was experiencing just how broken the world could be, was the moment that he showed love to us, was the moment that his uh, emotion lined up with action, like we talked about. And the life he lived here wasn't one of ease or of pleasure. Uh, Again, he was the son of a carpenter, uh, and even that, not really the carpenter's son, but adopted son. Uh, a son who everyone around him assumed was born out of wedlock, out of adultery, right? I mean, that's what even his own adopted father assumed and thought about. You look at Matthew 1.19, uh, where Joseph resolves in his heart to divorce Mary. Why do you think he's divorcing her? I mean, the assumption he made is, oh, this woman is pregnant. We have not been together. Therefore, assumptions, right? It's a small town. Everybody knew what was going on. Jesus probably had to endure dirty looks, whispering. Before he was even born, people were already giving Mary dirty looks and whispering about what's going on. And the rest of his life doesn't get much easier from there. The Bible talks about uh, Jesus being a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief and sadness, right? Um, But for the Christian, that's a good thing. That's something that should offer us hope, right? Uh, While it might seem crazy to the outside world, Christians actually rejoice in that. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to be like his brothers. That's you and me that he's talking about, humanity being his brothers. He's like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful because he can get us. He can sympathize with us. He knows what we went through. And later on, it says that this high priest is not a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who became like us in every regard. Because we know that Jesus is God with us, we can come to him. There's no hesitancy left that we can have. We can now draw with confidence near to the throne of grace. He suffered with us so that he would, we would know there's safety in coming to be with him. But Jesus didn't just suffer humiliation and humanity. He went so far, in fact, as to die a painful death. I would say it was an excruciating crucifixion, but I would kind of be repeating myself. We get our modern word excruciating from the root word crucio, uh, which if you're a Harry Potter fan out there, you you know probably what that means a little bit. It's one of those unforgivable curses. Um, It's the same root word that gets used for crucifixion. Dying on a cross was literally so bad that the Romans thought, you know what? We're we're just going to use this as our word for pain. 
Crucifixion is so bad that it became the word for pain. Do you know how bad something has to be for it to become the word for something, right? Like, if, again, going back to college football, if I say someone cooged it, yes. we all know what we're talking about, right? <laughs> you've, you've literally got to be really exemplary for it to become a verb. Or like if I say I'm going to Google something, Google is, was a noun, it's a company, but all of a sudden it's become a verb. Uh, it, because it really is the only th way thing out there, right? Um, imagine how painful crucifixion had to be for it to become the word for pain. Like excruciating pain literally comes from cross. Like, that's just hard for me to wrap my mind around. And that's not, just, that's not something that accidentally or incidentally or coincidentally happened in the life of Jesus. It's not just something that happened while he was on earth and, you know, well, it wasn't exactly part of the plan, but God just made it work somehow. He, he worked it all out for the good in the end. No, from the very get-go, from the beginning, this was God's plan for what would happen to the Messiah. Remember earlier in Genesis, I, I, the very first book of the Bible, I talked about earlier the first promise of the Messiah. The first promise of the Messiah involves the Messiah dying. Like in talking to the first humans on earth, Adam and Eve, God is already making promises. Hey, this is the game plan. The Messiah is going to have to die. Uh, Isaiah 53, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, goes into vivid graphic detail about how the Messiah would die. And oh yeah, that was 900 years before the name Jesus was ever given to Christ. Like, that, that's crazy to wrap your mind around, right? But it was the game plan from the get-go. Because of his great love for us, he didn't back down. He didn't shy away from the task that was set before him. No matter how painful it was, no matter how excruciating it was going to be, his motivation was love, and so he endured it, and so he did it. That's why the angel told Joseph that uh, Jesus would come to save his people, right? Um, death was always part of the plan. Even from the moment of his birth, that angel knew this is what's going to happen, and Jesus did it because he loves us. Um, in the words of Jesus himself, he says, Greater love has no one th than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. So if you are ever, you know, wondering how you can experience the love of God, you know, man, I feel like God really doesn't love me. I feel like I'm unloved by God. This is that reminder. <laughs> this, this is why Christians use the cross as a symbol for love, because even though it's excruciating, even though it's painful, even though it's something that any sane, rational person would back down from, Jesus chose to endure it for you and for me. But this isn't just a love of the past tense, of what he once did for us and something we look back to only. Uh, this, in fact, brings me to my third bullet point, if you're taking notes out there. Um, in Christ, we have a future to look forward to. He will finally show his love for us by returning for us. He will finally show his love for us by returning for us. I love the words of Revelation 21.4. A, a lot of people quote it, preach on it, talk about it, memorize it. Uh, it's a great and powerful verse of encouragement. It's talking about the end, uh, the end of all times when everything wraps up, when we're uh, experiencing heaven with Christ. And, and it says this, it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For these former things, these things of the past, these things that you once had to experience will be wiped away forever. That's a beautiful promise. It's frankly a promise that I memorized early on in my Christian life. But the basis of this promise can only be found in the verse that comes before it. 
You can't get to the joy of chapter four, or the joy of verse four, without the foundation of verse three. Going one verse earlier, we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Again, this goes back to God with us, God dwelling with us. And then, when he is with us, he will wipe away the tears and the pain forevermore. When he is with us, he will swallow up death in his presence, right? That relationship with God, that being with God, that God with us and us, us with God, that's the ultimate prize. You know, Christians talk a lot about eternal life. Uh, eternal life wouldn't be any good if God wasn't there. And I think modern media has done actually a really great job of proving why that is, right? Um, there's plenty of television shows, short stories, movies, you name it, of, of someone who lives forever, right? Uh, and just how actually bad that would be here on earth. Uh, after 200 years, you eat the same meals over and over again. Even if you try to switch it up, you've already eaten this before. It gets pretty old after a while, right? After 500 years, all trends uh, lose their meaning. Anything that goes on in the world, you've seen it before. It's all the same. After 1,000 years, days and weeks and years become kind of meaningless. they just another passage of time. Eternal life without God, quite frankly, would be miserable. But that's the beauty of, of what heaven is actually going to be. Um, God himself is the prize, the great reward. Because he himself is infinite and he himself is eternal, even as we live forever, there's always more of him to know, more of him to love. That relationship is the prize center there. Um, there's always further up that we can go. There's always further in that we can go, in depth in God. We're told in the Bible, I think this is really beautiful, we're told in 1 Corinthians that faith, hope, and love are the greatest Christian virtues, but in the end, only love will remain. Why is that? That, that, that seems kind of confusing. Why, what happens to faith and hope? Uh, well, one day we'll see God face to face, and there's not going to be a need for putting our faith in him because we can see him. Uh, we're, when we're with him, that promise is fulfilled. There's no need for hope anymore because we're already with him. The promise is fulfilled. But, but on that day when we see him and for the rest of eternity, love remains and we get to be in relationship with him. And because he's coming back, we can know that he truly deeply cares for us, that he values us, that he loves us. So then we know that God loves us and we know that this is more than just an intellectual love, knowledge, like, yes, I understand, but we can actually experience it. We can actually know it and have it in our lives. Uh, we can recall his faithfulness in the past. Uh, we can look at the ways that he's suffered with us, and we look at the coming fulfillment of that love, and we can say, yes, I feel in my life that God loves us. Uh, but what now? What does that change about us today? Does that change us today? I think, yes, it should, right? Something that transformative has to have an impact on your life. Um, Jesus calls us to imitate him, to be disciples of his, to follow him, to do as he does, Right? Um, we're called to be kind of mirrors. Uh, his light shines on us and we shine it back out. Um, and part of that love is to, and part of that reflection is to love like Jesus has loved us. In, first, in, uh, in John 15, 13, Jesus says this, this commandment, or this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. His love becomes the standard for us by which we love others. We wouldn't even know what love truly was without him. So now we have to turn around and love others. And again, this isn't just a sentiment or well-wishing upon other people. 
Jesus wants true, radical, transformative love. Uh, in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, we read about this kind of love. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we ought to also lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk only, but in deed and in truth. This is what Christmas is all about. God saw us in our great need, in our great suffering, and didn't close his heart against us, but instead came down to us, suffered with us, and died, died for us to bring us out of that great need that we had. This is the same love that transformed Joseph from a man who was ready to divorce Mary and leave her behind to a man who remained faithfully with her, uh, enduring all the side-eyed judgment that she herself also endured. This love is available to you and to me to experience and to enjoy, but also to transform you as you share it with other people. So here at Harvest, we like to close with two prayers. Um, the first prayer is a prayer of invitation. So if this, is a love of, if this is a love of God that you haven't experienced for yourself, if you're, if you're saying, man, I'd really love for God to be with me, to, to put my faith in Emmanuel and to, to know God's love through, remember that word we circled, through Jesus Christ, um, that's something that's available to you today. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just have to put your faith and hope in Christ. Uh, maybe you'd pray a prayer like this with me. Um, King Jesus, thank you for the incredible, immense love that you have shown for me. Thank you for coming on that first Christmas um, to be with us, to be with me. Um, Jesus, I believe that you are the only way that I can get through uh, the only way that I can experience the love of God and have that love transform my life. Um, I put my trust in you. I put my faith in you that you're the only way that I can be part of God's family. Um, and I, I give my life to you to be transformed and to love others just as you have loved me. Uh, it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, congratulations, you're part of the family, right? That's a moment for great joy, great excitement, and it's something that we really hope you share with someone here today. Uh, maybe you'll write that on your connection card. Um, maybe you'll talk to someone after the service. Maybe someone who invited you here today, you can turn and talk to them and let them know. But once you're part of the family, we, we would love to celebrate that with you. Uh, the next prayer that we have is a prayer of a discipleship, a prayer of application, if you will. Um, just talking about um, wanting to apply what we've learned in our lives as we follow Jesus. So whether you've prayed that prayer five seconds ago, uh, whether you prayed that prayer 50 years ago, uh, maybe you'll pray something like this with me. King Jesus, I'm so very grateful uh, for all the love that you've shown me. Um, as I look back throughout my own personal history and throughout the history of the world, I can see the ways that you've been faithful in your love. Uh, you loved in the past, and I believe that you will continue to love me today and in the future. Uh, God, I pray that you would let me experience your love um, deep in my heart. Would it transform me? Would it change me? Um, and would it, would it be something that I can find an anchor in? Um, God, would you make me aware of the needs around me, the people in my life who uh, are in need of love? Um, would you give me opportunities to not show a love that comes from my own strength, but the kind of love that is a reflection of your love and of who you are. Um, King Jesus, make me an agent of love this Christmas. 
um, someone who loves just as you have loved us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.